It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. You, you, are, you are a little loud, Scott. Just so you know. Am I a little loud? I can You're back out a little, little bit, maybe. Yeah. Is it better? It's better. Oh, I'll move my mic back. Just, How'd that? And then, and then tap on it a lot. I never hear the tapping in the recording. You may hear. I think it gets edited out. I will I happily send you timestamps. You know, Alan Alan never hears the, the clackety-clack-clack <laughs> of his keyboard. Exactly. And somehow it's edited out. But somewhere Jen has just a reel that's just me tapping the mic and just clackety-clack-clack sounds haunting her nightmares. That, sound, that sounds like a really good Patreon exclusive. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just like a one-hour footage <laughs> of all the ex- excerpted little it's like noise. the worst ASMR of all time. Exactly. When one of us takes a deep drink of coffee without going on mute and it's just a gulping noise. <laughs> it's like Ratsack mukbang. <laughs> just yeah, I was saying form. Bryce can chew in the background. Exactly. As Donald Trump. <laughs> eating a Big Mac or some other, some other fast food with a fork and knife. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security 2.0, a.k.a. Rational Security Casino Rationale. I believe I did Rosino Royale a few weeks ago, but this is way better. Why didn't I do this the first time around? I'm not really sure. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson. I'm here with my other co-host, Quinta Dressick. Hello. And Alan Rosenstein. Hello, hello. And we are joined here today by Lawfare's latest podcast sensation, Associate Editor Bryce Clem. Bryce, thank you so much for joining us here today. Great to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. That is that professional <laughs> podcaster voice that we have all come to love so <laughs> much tones. over these last few weeks. The dulcet tones. Bryce does one hit podcast and it just goes to his head. It's unbelievable. Bryce's ability to completely change and, and improve the nature of the podcast by speaking with this just the slightest bit of emotion and, and inflection, something none of us have tried over the last eight years of doing this, is exceptional. And we're excited to bring that insight to today's rational security. Well, we should say what the podcast is for people who haven't heard it yet. Bryce, take it away. We should. Absolutely. Bryce, why don't you tell us about this uh, podcast we're going to be talking a little bit about today? Sure. So the podcast is called Allies. You can find it wherever you get your podcast by searching Allies Lawfare or maybe just Allies, depending on how well the show is doing. We don't know yet. Um, and the show traces the war in Afghanistan uh, through the eyes of translators and interpreters and tracks a government program called the Special Immigrant Visa Program or SIV uh, that was really created in the late 2000s to essentially undergo a slow motion evacuation of interpreters who li- whose lives were under threat as a result of their work for the United States. Well, I will say, uh, without setting all joking aside, Allies really is one of the best products that Lawfare has put together. So really excited to have you here to talk a little bit about the topics you cover there, some of the stuff we may not get into, and how it relates to one of our big topics this week for what we are calling the Shameless Self-Promotion Edition, for all the reasons you may have already picked up on uh, so far in this episode with a little bit more yet to come. We are dealing with a couple of big topics in the national security news today, a couple of heavy ones, beginning with topic number one, remember the 90s. Nine months have passed since the Taliban seized power in Kabul, and its promises of a more moderate rule than the harsh theocracy it oversaw in the 1990s are increasingly ringing hollow. Just this past week, the Taliban issued a new edict directing women and girls to cover everything but their eyes while in public and discouraging them from leaving their homes. Is there any chance of the Taliban changing tack, and how should the United States and others be engaging with them? Topic two, a shooting in Buffalo. An 18-year-old shooter who killed 10 black shoppers at a supermarket this past week appears to have been radicalized online by a version of replacement theory, which has been echoed in rhetoric by mainstream right-wing political figures ranging from Tucker Carlson to Elise Stefanik. How should platforms and policymakers combat such radicalization and prevent more violence? Topic three, it's coming from inside the House. The January 6th committee took a dramatic step earlier this week when it issued subpoenas to five House Republicans who had refused to voluntarily participate with its investigation, including Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. 
Why did the committee take this step now, and what are the odds it will actually lead these members to cooperate? For our first topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you to get us started. So I'm, I'm glad that we'll have Bryce here to give us some of the, the context and the, the background on where Afghanistan is right now. But so there's been uh, some reporting recently about how the Taliban is struggling, I think it's fair to say, um, in its role as the new government of Afghanistan, um, both in terms of managing a pretty severe economic crisis and also in its effort to present what was initially presented as a, a kinder, gentler Taliban Recently, there have been restrictions uh, put on what women can wear, that they they have to cover themselves. There was uh, one Taliban leader suggested that women shouldn't leave their homes uh, unless accompanied by uh, a male relative. There was also the Taliban dissolved uh, independent human rights commission that had been set up um, within Afghanistan, uh, all of which I think suggests that the country is perhaps headed in a bad direction, uh, something that many people were concerned about when the U.S. withdrew and the Taliban quickly took control. So, Bryce, I, I do want to make sure that we get your insights here. But, um, Scott, I want to turn to you first and just see what you make of this news. I mean, is it something that we should have seen coming? Was this inevitable? What do you make of it? You know, I think the best way to envision these recent developments uh, and to contextualize them is to put them against the backdrop of what appeared to be the strategy of the United States, the international community, including the United Nations leadership, and a lot of U.S. and Western allies adopted shortly after the fall of Kabul in mid-August this past year uh, and the rise of Taliban as, at that point, not clearly the 100% control of the country, but seemingly in the, on that trajectory at this point, pretty in pretty solid control of the country, although there is still a little bit of a uprising going on around the Panjir Valley that just heated back up in the last few days. And that is that the idea was we are going to be open to engaging the Taliban in Afghanistan, but we're going to tie recognition and we're going to tie serious sanctions relief to some pretty ambitious demands for Taliban conduct, which ranged from inclusive governance, finding some sort of governmental structure that would incorporate not just the Taliban, but other ethnic, religious, political factions in the country, to embracing certain human basic human rights standards for women, for ethnic and religious minorities, for other people who have been treated quite poorly by the Taliban regime when it was previously in control and other parts of the country where it's been in control longer, and a variety of these other demands. This idea is to do in a very ambitious con conditionality. The trajectory, though, has been in the opposite direction. Uh, the Taliban has given a lot of lip service to these ideas. Very early on in particular, it really tried to assuage international concerns about it returning to power by saying, we are not the old Taliban. We are a new Taliban. We're a Taliban that understands the international community, understands the requirements for international recognition, and wants to work towards them. But on the ground, it hasn't actually taken that many steps to actually do so. Instead, we've seen a gradual ratcheting back towards conditions that look a lot more like the 1990s regime that ruled. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that the people who speak for the Taliban to the outside world represent just one faction of the broader, very complex network of interest that forms the Taliban. It's not a super unitary group. And that a lot of internal politics are really what drives the policies or seems to be the main driver of the policies that the Taliban adopts domestically, particularly around issues of key concern to them, like women's rights, like uh, various other sorts of civil rights, or what we think of as human rights. And that's a huge problem. Um, it means that these tools that we're using and conditions we're imposing on this regime just don't have the bite or sway that we expect them to. And so, you know, in my mind, it says that this might be getting to the point where we need to start reconsidering those policies and finding other types of conditionality or other types of weighing conditionality to try and make at least some progress in Afghanistan, or maybe even just open up Afghanistan a little bit more to outside influences that might be able to empower you know, domestic constituencies that want to try and push the Taliban for more rights, but aren't able to do so in the conditions of severe austerity that Afghanistan's really struggling with right now. The problem is, and this is related to an article I wrote back in August, shortly after the government collapsed, what we're seeing right now is the status quo is something that persisted in regard to Afghanistan and the Taliban for years throughout the 1990s. It is really a return to a policy that was the dominant U.S. and Western approach to Afghanistan for most of the 1990s, and, and arguably in a lot of ways the 1980s too, uh, at least certain aspects of a particularly related to recognition. 
And there were nothing really came along to knock the United States and other countries off that equilibrium. And I'm not sure there's anything on the horizon that's really going to knock them off the equilibrium this time either, um, especially given how dug in so many domestic factions here and different factions around the world are against the Taliban as a supporter of terrorism, as a group with which no bridges can be built and no compromises be made. So I, I think that's a really helpful analysis of the kind of on the ground issues related to this. The only thing that I would I would say, and I come at this as sort of not a foreign policy expert at all, is just that this issue, and particularly the issue of women's rights in Afghanistan, right, is in some sense the main contribution that the United States made to the Afghan people over the 20 years of, well, I don't know, you call it American rule or American supported democratic rule in Afghanistan, whatever, whatever the case may be. And you know, it's become, I think, very fashionable, both on the left and the right, to view sort of any American intervention abroad with deep suspicion. Um, and I think that given the complete failure of the war in Iraq and the real pathologies of the war in Afghanistan, there are reasons for that suspicion. But at the same time, I, I think it has to be acknowledged that you know, sometimes the thing that does protect certain types of human rights, in particular, for example, women's rights in Afghanistan, is a interventionist American foreign policy that, you know, brings all of its pathologies with it. Now, you know, does that outweigh the the downsides of it? Um, you know, what sort of historical time period are we looking at, given, of course, that a lot of the reason the Taliban was able to take over Afghanistan was because of American actions in the 1980s with respect to the Russian invasion of Afghanistan. These are all very complicated questions. But I, I do think that, you know, this does complicate the increasingly popular consensus that, you know, American intervention you know, never, never has a role and, and it's just is not effective in promoting human rights. And it's just really sad and tragic um, to see this backsliding after 20 years. And if I could uh, jump in here for a second, you know, we shouldn't really mistake that. And when I say we, I mean, sort of the American public and the people that talk about, you know, being, being now scared off of American intervention anywhere, we shouldn't confuse that with not trying to, you know, help refugees who were the the main result of our intervention in both Iraq and Afghanistan. And in the case of Afghanistan, in addition to the regression of women's rights that we've seen over the past few months and weeks since the withdrawal, there has also been a Taliban retribution campaign against people that worked in the Afghan security forces and government and former translators and interpreters for the United States. Last month, there was a, a very informative piece in the New York Times uh, that detailed how the Taliban had promised amnesty for anybody that worked for the Afghan government or Afghan security forces. And a lot of people returned to Afghanistan, even if they had fled to Iran or in some cases other places. And this this article, they confirmed 409, they have the largest database of Taliban executions or forced disappearances, and they confirmed 490 cases of people being disappeared in some cases you know, these people were decapitated and their bodies were sent back to their families. Now, the Taliban has officially said that this is a few rogue actors. But frankly, I don't know if that distinction matters when you're evaluating how much of a, you know, how qualified the Taliban are to be a government. And so, you know, one of the broader things that we're trying to get at in the show allies is how in addition to people who work directly for the U.S., there are so many people that are still in Afghanistan who built their lives around the promises of the U.S.'s mission in Afghanistan, and they became active in civil society. I mean, we spoke to one, one 22-year-old who was evacuated this past August, and he didn't remember what life was like before the U.S. intervention, and he wanted to be a journalist and be engaged civically. And, you know, he was, he was fortunate enough to be, to be evacuated this past August, but there are so many people like that. And, you know, the big one of the big questions that we're trying to, to tackle in the show and something that's still ongoing is, you know, don't don't those people qualify for some form of protection for the U.S., even though they didn't work directly for it. Maybe they built their lives around the U.S.'s ideals. Yeah. So I want to ask more about that. I mean, obviously, the, the there were sort of initial evacuation efforts, some coordinated by and through the government, some by people freelancing and just trying to get people out. Are those continuing? Is Was that kind of a, you know, there was a big burst of activity in that August when the U.S. withdrew. Do we know anything about what those efforts look like now? Sure. Um, it's really hard to know what those efforts look like now because understandably people would want to keep them under wraps for a number, any number of reasons. But there are commercial flights leaving Afghanistan 
but the Taliban has made it extremely hard for anyone to leave. First of all, you have to get permission from the Taliban to leave. And they have, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what the number is right now, but they have exit fees basically that are wildly unaffordable to to anyone. So they've really made it impossible to leave the country. Now, there are a number of groups in the United States, like the Afghan EVAC coalition that continue to lobby both in Capitol Hill and in the executive branch to for you know different relocation and evacuation efforts. But it's really coming at a trickle from everything that I can I can tell. I mean, I could be wrong. There could be something that we don't we just don't know. But at least in, in what's out there in the public, you know, there's really not that much going on. I will also add that there is one of the biggest issues from this past August was the legal status of most of the people who were evacuated. The U.S., I think, got out about 78,000 Afghans, and a very small number of that were former translators and interpreters who qualify for the SIV program. Now, for the vast majority, their legal status is completely uncertain. I think uh, the Biden administration, maybe last month or the month before, extended their temporary protection status in the United States for another 18 months. But there was there was some action on Capitol Hill with something called the Afghan Adjustment Act that would have cleared a pathway for a lot of a lot of these people who were evacuated in August. And unfortunately, it was supposed to be tied to the Ukrainian supplemental, the $40 billion going to Ukraine, but Republican opposition, you know, basically cut that off. And the the status of that bill now is is completely uncertain. So this issue is very much uh, still ongoing, and we're still seeing a lot of the repercussions from this past August. Another thing that you've seen has really been the double standard by which Ukrainian refugees are welcomed into the United States, and the Biden administration has really, has really welcomed them, and understandably so. And that's you know that's something I think we should all support. But Russell uh, Russell Berman in the Atlantic has a new piece out about this, and you know. They, the Biden administration, through something called Uniting with Ukraine, it's a new program. They're waiving fees associated with humanitarian parole. But according to IRAP, and, and Berman talks about this in the article, as many as 40,000 applicants from Afghanistan have had to pay as much as $575 for a similar application. And another thing that these Afghans have to do is they have to prove you know, that they're under threat, they have to prove violence. And that's something that's very hard to, but Ukrainians do not need to. So that's another thing that we're seeing with, with, with a real double standard for, for both Afghan and Ukrainian refugees. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that your podcast underlines is just how unbelievably broken the American immigration system is on many different levels. And I think that story just underlines it. I also think that that point you made Bryce, is really captures what has happened to Afghanistan since this past August, and that it is it is an intractable set of really difficult policy questions without a clear answer, although I would argue at least in regards to people who are out of Afghanistan, there is a clear answer. It is clearer than the United States' ability. It's just a matter of political will uh, in Congress and the executive branch. But other issues with Afghanistan, there's no clear right answer. There's no easy answer. It's hard work to get there. And the Biden administration has been, and much of the world has been completely focused on Ukraine since at least February in reality, all the way back to December or November. It's hard to underscore, and sometimes it's a little hard to imagine when you think about the number of diplomats, the number of people working on foreign policy issues in the United States government. But it actually is still shockingly difficult when it gets to really, really hard foreign policy questions that require a lot of political buy-in and political capital to, to operate on. It is remarkably difficult for even our sophisticated government to really walk and chew gum at the same time because it's a lot of the same people, particularly because here you're talking about economic sanctions, which is, plays such an integral role in Ukraine, is still a core issue in regard to Afghanistan. I mean, just a few months ago, we saw the Biden administration adopt a widely misunderstood action I spent a lot of time explaining in lawfare, dealing with Afghan central bank assets and basically said, look, we're going to put $3.5 billion, half of these assets in a third party trust to preserve them for the benefit of the Afghan people, set up a legal mechanism for doing that transfer. Three months later, we don't know what that third party trust is. We haven't seen any details about it. We haven't seen any action towards actually doing it that I'm aware of. And that's not a problem yet, but it's going to be a problem soon. Um, and it just, you need more attention on these issues, more political will to drive them forward. And there just isn't that much bandwidth now in the highest echelons of government where that you need to be paying attention to this sort of stuff to have major changes in policy approaches. So I don't really have the stomach for a clever intro or a segue. So I'll just, I'll just say from uh, bad news abroad to bad news at home. Um, you know, the, the Buffalo mass shooting has 
been on the, the front pages of the last few days as it should be. And so I'm not going to spend too much time going over the uh, the details. I suspect we're all quite familiar with them. You know, I, I will say before I, I turn it to you all for, with some questions, um, I, I spent some time yesterday reading the uh, quote unquote manifesto. Um, I know there's some controversy over whether we should call it a manifesto so as not to... Uh, uh, to glorify uh, what the, uh, the the killer wrote, though I think that at this point, calling something a manifesto always implies that it's uh, pretty unhinged. So I'm comfortable continuing to call that uh, it for the for the time being. So somewhere Marx is like infuriated about that, but okay, that's fine. Wait, what? Somewhere? Well, who's infuriated? Communist manifesto. Oh, oh, oh Marx. Yeah, I guess. I guess so. Yeah. Marx that's, Carl. You might have yeah. heard of him. Marx yeah. comma Carl. Well, you know, unhinged. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Give some respect. I was not actually trying to subtweet Karl Marx there. Um, you know, it's a um, it's a horrifying document, um, as you can imagine. But one thing I, I will say is that um, you know, with some mass shootings, it can sometimes be difficult to tell exactly what the motivations were. This is not the case here. Uh, you know, it opens with great replacement rhetoric. It goes through a ton of. You know, racist and anti-black stuff. There's you know a ton of anti-Semitism uh, in the in the manifesto uh, as well. It's it's actually that's the uh, e- even more uh, uh, anti-Semitism than than uh, anti-black content. Though of course, uh, given the nature of the shooting and the fact that it was um, against a predominantly black uh, uh, grocery store grocery store that had a predominantly black uh, clientele, the media is appropriately focusing on the racial element or the anti-black element of the uh, shooter's mindset here. But I do think that this is uh, probably the clearest uh, indication of how this sort of white nationalist rhetoric can have real world consequences. Uh, and so, you know, with that said, I want to ask, and I'm going to start with Quinta here. How much more concerned are you with the danger of white supremacist, white nationalist violence generally, and and as well as the increased popularity of those ideologies in the far right, and honestly, in some parts of the Republican Party, uh, given the Buffalo shooting? I mean, in other words, are you more concerned than you were before? Or is this horrifying as it is not actually surprising, given everything that we've been experiencing the last several years in our country? I don't know if it's surprising, unfortunately. I mean, this is not the first mass shooting that has been carried out by a shooter talking about the Great Replacement or using similar language. So, of course, we had the Christchurch shooting in New Zealand that was targeted against Muslims that was based on a similar idea. There was the El Paso shooting that I think the the shooter explicitly uh, had written about the, the Great Replacement or at least had expressed uh, concern at the idea that Latinos were becoming a larger share of the U.S. population and that shooting was targeted at a grocery grocery store where there were many Latino shoppers and those were, uh, I believe, predominantly the victims. This shooting, as you said, Alan, I think it's, it's important to underline not only were the majority of the victims Black, the shooter drove several hours to a majority Black neighborhood in Buffalo that is majority Black in large part because of the legacy of segregation and redlining in that city and targeted a grocery store that was the only grocery store in a food desert uh, that the community had fought for that was a real gathering place for the Black community in that area. So I think it's, you know, all those things are important to keep in mind and I think are part of why this is so devastating Um, among many other reasons. It's hard for me to say, you know, the most recent bad thing that happened makes me more concerned about the bad thing in the same way that every time there is an apparently random mass shooting, I don't feel more concerned about what I would identify as the need for gun control. I feel the same amount of concern, which is a lot of concern. I do think that this... (sighs) demonstrates a lot of the flaws and weaknesses in all kinds of systems that allowed such a thing to take place. So let me confine myself to the political system and uh, the internet, because I think those are the two that I feel most qualified to to speak about. So on the online corner, I don't want to put too much blame on the platforms here, I think Tim Kaine had a very odd tweet suggesting that like big tech was somehow at fault for this, which I, I think is 
frankly, a bit strange given that the main source of rhetoric on the Great Replacement is arguably, as the New York Times has ably documented, Tucker Carlson on Fox News. But it is also true that the major platforms are not doing a particularly good job preventing the manifesto or whatever we're calling it and video from circulating. There's been a lot of movement among major platforms of, you know, efforts to collaborate, to create hashing databases, to be able to take this stuff down to prevent people from circulating it. And it doesn't seem to be working particularly well. My impression is that part of it is that this is a genuinely difficult problem, just technically speaking. Part of it is the creativity of people who are finding ways to spread it, for example, by uh embedding media uh, from other platforms, linking to things on other platforms, which I understand is harder uh, for platforms to pick up on. But I think, you know, if we're thinking about, okay, what can we do better? This is clearly an area for improvement. And then, you know, when it comes to the political system, look, I mean, it when Christchurch happened, when El Paso happened under the Trump administration, I do think it was impossible to look at those and ignore the context of who was president and the fact that Trump was using racist and xenophobic rhetoric that in many cases echoed what the killers were saying. In this case, it is very striking that um, Representative Elise Stefanik used language that sort of echoed the Great Replacement Theory shortly before the shooting and then after the fact has completely refused to back down. Stefanik being a Republican who came into the House as kind of like a moderate Republican, you know, she'll work with both sides and has really gone like full mega in recent years. And I think that points to just how difficult this is going to be to address when you have a major news host on cable every night saying these things when you have a major one of the two major political parties where a sort of flagship member of the party an up and comer potentially in leadership um, is saying this stuff not backing down because it's politically expedient um, it's just hard for me to see how we deal with any of this and that's before we get to the complete impasse over gun control which I haven't even mentioned because it's so transparently obvious that nothing's going to change here so at the end of the day, I mean, I, I look at this and it's just impossible to categorize the number of different pieces of systems that are broken. I'll say, I think one of the most exceptional or interesting things about this particular case and this particular perpetrator is not unique, uh, but I think maybe it captures it a little better than some others, is the extent to which he is motivated by building a worldview and activities that he sought affirmation from through particularly online communities in this case, although I don't think it's always typically online. You know, they talked about him building preparatory lists and engaging people on Discord uh, and on 4chan uh, and engaging in other sorts of conversations that both feed the worldview, actually talk about preparation for actions like this, hinting at it, discussing it, and then also bleeding into his day-to-day life, whether it's you know, statements during educational programs about referencing mass shootings that triggered enough alarm that um, school officials brought it to the attention of state police at some point, but apparently to no avail. And what I have to think is this makes me think back to some of the early days about um, counterterrorism efforts, uh, frankly, relating to the Islamic State uh, in Iraq and its use of Twitter and other social media. And there was a big effort at the time to say, look, I mean, at the time, there was an effort to pull down and try and isolate people and remove them. And, you know, I think it's it's acknowledged out there that at this point, there was some hesitation to do that, among other places, by the United States government seeking to combat these groups because their voluntary contributions and discussions in these communities were a major source of useful intelligence. And I have to wonder, particularly given that we probably have major First Amendment limitations that are going to prevent shutting down a lot of speech avenues, certainly before the committing of these sorts of events, if there's not a strong case to be made that we need to take some of these same intelligence tools that we use in a lot of other environments, whether it's marketing through large data, targeting of marketing measures, or through, you know, kind of mosaic theory, combining a bunch of publicly available information to develop profiles, people to start turning some of that technology that we use in the immigration context and other policy contexts very controversially towards an issue like this, where there actually just isn't any other good preventive mechanisms, right? I mean, the only other thing we have is direct intervention by family members and community members. And you see somebody who's headed in a troubling direction. And that's 
just not something that happens reliably enough as much as we would like it to be, as much as we should try and improve it through education, through providing public resources, mental health resources, things like that. It's never going to be flawless. A lot of times these people who are doing this very problematic behavior have themselves mental health issues that can be rooted back to their lack of a support network, their lack of a family support and other mechanisms. It's a, it's a vicious feedback cycle. So, you know, if we're going to treat this like a real threat to national security, and I think we have to at this point, because this trend is too well dominated, and frankly, is having too big an impact on some of our most vulnerable communities in the United States, then it means bringing out big tools like that. And this is one area where this particular suspect's pattern of conduct seems like it would have made them vulnerable to revealing themselves to potential law enforcement if you had that sort of analytical resources and bent brought to bear here. I think there are legit privacy concerns with aspects of it. There are things you need to navigate. But you know, as the FBI turns, as it really in good faith seems to be doing over the last year or two to really seriously address this, I can't help but wonder whether this is a toolkit and tool set and method that's going to be turned towards these people and that might actually have some success in identifying them before things go quite so bad. I will uh, I will jump in here and, and add something that there was a preventive mechanism in place, at least that's what's been reported. NBC News has an article out about how New York's red flag law was designed specifically for something like this, because in this case, the, the shooter had made really disturbing comments about less than a year ago um, to some members of his high school class, I believe, or to a teacher. And New York's red flag law was designed specifically for instances like that to get a very quick order from a judge preventing that person from purchasing a firearm. But so far, what's what's been reported is that there just wasn't a general awareness among law enforcement that that law even existed. So there were some mechanisms in place to to try and prevent something like this happen, obviously not on the appropriate scale or even if people acknowledged it. But that is one thing I will add. Scott, you, you raised the First Amendment issue. And so I, I do want to talk about that a little bit, because I, I do think it's notable what the response has been from at least some politicians in the wake of, of this. You know, I think most notably, New York Governor Kathy Hochul um, has called for much more aggressive, I don't know, call it moderation of far right content. And, and the, the quote here is, um, I'll protect the First Amendment any day of the week, but you don't protect hate speech. You don't protect incendiary speech. <laughs> The, the, the problem uh, with that is that uh, whatever you might want the First Amendment to be, the First Amendment definitely protects hate speech. And what counts as incendiary speech or specifically incitement to violence under the kind of Brandenburg test is pretty high, as we've talked about in other contexts here in, uh, on lawfare. So if the root cause of this is the prevalence of this sort of racist ideology, white nationalist worldview on cable news or on the internet. Is there a way, are there legal tools, in other words, that can combat that given that the First Amendment pretty unequivocally and unambiguously protects this sort of material? You tell me, Alan. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I, I don't, I don't think so. I, I don't think so either. And, and it is, it is, I will say it is bizarre to me that politicians don't seem to realize that. Like this is not this is not, you know, upper level first amendment doctrine. Like this is what you learn on day 2. Yeah, I mean and I also think that there's like I said with Tim Kaine, like it's not clear to me that the platforms are really the bad guy here. I like I look, I I have criticized them and I will continue to criticize them for failing to remove this material quickly enough. But it just seems like kind of a, a misfire. I mean, there was also, I, I can't remember who it was, but I think one New York uh, representative in Congress uh, made some comment to the extent of, you know, this is why we need to amend Section 230. Section 230 is not the problem here. Section 230 is, among other reasons, why these platforms can take stuff down. So I, it felt, it feels a little bit to me like the pointing to the platforms as the bad guys rather than the content is kind of like a instinctive gut reaction because frankly, so many things that are bad do trace back to the platforms and that, you know, and then we end up in this very familiar argument about the, the first amendment, but I don't know. It just, it feels like kind of a non sequitur to me. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, 
so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I think, I mean, I think it is a a classic example of people desperately struggling to find some sort of policy solution they can articulate in an environment where gun control is politically off the table and problematic and people are hesitant to raise it in election year, quite frankly. Uh, And I I have not heard any serious efforts to talk about gun control in a serious way again, except for a few people like uh, Senator Murphy, who's very good on this issue and also is from a state where it does not put him in electoral jeopardy to talk about it a lot um, for very good reasons, um, including its own horrible history of shootings. And and, you know, so what do they do? They're reaching out for some other solution. It, I think it's notable that the main like legislative solution we've seen so far has been um, this domestic terrorism prevention bill um, the House Democrats have brought forward. It's proven somewhat controversial or at least doesn't seem to have got really gotten a leg so far. But it itself is also pretty unobjectionable slash like not clear what exactly it does. I mean, it basically dictates the creation of a bunch of bureaucracy uh, and committed office around uh, domestic terrorism. I think that can be good. But, you know. FBI has been moving in this direction and has had been staffed up, uh, you know, fusion cells about hate using hate crimes and domestic terrorism units for a number of years now. And and while there were some issues during the Trump administration, I think is particularly focused on them now. You know, it installs a bunch of reporting requirements. But again, people are just struggling for a solution to this problem, particularly Congress, who feels like they need to respond somehow. And you know, when you put take gun control off the table, when you accept that there are constitutional limitations at what can be done at least ex ante for a lot of the speech that happens before these acts of violence, and I think that's absolutely right, there are real constitutional constraints there. It's just a really hard problem to squarely address. Again, I mean, in my mind, that's why we need to start thinking about the strategy of this entirely differently. And if we are stuck in an environment where a lot of speech and a lot of conduct around this is available and is going to happen and cannot be legally restricted in a meaningful way, you know, maybe that turn that toward advantage to the extent we can through intelligence collection. I, I agree with that. And, and before we wrap here, I do want to just make a little more concrete what I think Scott is, is saying, and which I agree with, which is whether the issue is fundamentally about the content, there's not that much that can be done about it for First Amendment reasons. And to the extent that this is a gun control problem, and clearly in some part it is, that's not going to happen anytime soon. So the third, the, the remaining leg of the wobbly stool uh, of dealing with this problem is just going to be traditional law enforcement and law enforcement as counter counterterrorism. Now, we've gone through this before, right? For a decade or 15 years since 9-11, and this is still going on, there was a ton of uh, domestic counterterrorism operations dealing with you know, Islamic-related terrorism. And there were some real pros and cons to that. Now, the Cons were, I think, underplayed um, in the American consciousness for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, there is no domestic constituency for uh, you know, radical Islamic terrorism in the United States. Um, we all can agree that that's bad. And also, uh, there's just some underlying double standards because the you know people who were caught up in these investigations, some of whom are really bad actors and some of whom are just kind of idiot kids who got caught up in stuff, were not white. Uh, and so it was kind of easier um, for American society to, you know, not view this uh, with a lot of uh, concern in terms of potential government overreach. That is not going to be the case with what's going to happen going forward. Um, if the FBI is going to deal with this threat commensurate to its scale, it is going to have to increase its activities, I don't know, by an order of magnitude. And that means that it's going to have to use all the incredibly intrusive and in some cases, repressive 
tools in its authority, from surveillance to various type of sting operations to things that come real close to entrapment because they want to be very aggressive at finding people who are even considering this and putting them in jail, right? But unlike uh, with uh, you know international terrorism, most of these people are going to be white. Most of these people are also going to um, be parroting ideologies that there is an increasingly large domestic constituency for, including in one of the major political parties. And I, 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 I just don't know how to deal with this. I mean, I think you honestly have to go back to the, you know, federal efforts to fight the Ku Klux Klan, frankly, to, uh, to, to see historical parallel. And I mean, that worked, but it wasn't pretty. Yeah, and it also ended in a political reconciliation in, yeah, in yeah. 1876, right, which destroyed the entire ecosystem in the name of civility. Shocker. I, I do think I think that that point is really important, Alan, and I want to underline that you know we have already seen what happens when DOJ tries to investigate aggressively in an area that is politically sensitive and it's not pretty. So listeners may recall, there have been some concerns about uh, protests at school boards getting violent, uh, threats of violence, serious harassment towards school board members and other uh, educational uh, officials. Attorney General Garland sent out a letter essentially saying, like, look, we take, you know, of course, everybody has a First Amendment right to speak at a school board meeting, but we take harassment and violence seriously. Some of these things are illegal. We'd like everyone to keep an eye on this and look into it. And uh, Republican members of the Senate lost their minds over it. Now, that is comparatively minor compared to what we're describing here. Um, but if that is what happened after one little letter that didn't actually really tell anyone to do anything, I cannot imagine what it looks like when, you know, it turns out that the FBI is, you know, aggressively investigating people who hold these beliefs. Um, it's it's going to be an absolute mess. Yeah. Or to put it another way, what happens when the paranoid right-wing fears of black helicopters come true because you have to actually use the black helicopters because the threat is so severe? I, I will say, I think that's a problem at a far end of the spectrum. I think there's a lot to be done before we get quite to that level. And, to, you know, the worst case scenarios doesn't excuse not moving in that direction, you know? So I, I I sympathize with it, but I also think it's easy to overstate the extent that's an issue. I think there's probably a lot more law enforcement can do before we actually get close to those trip lines um, and even a level below political scrutiny if need be. And hopefully they're doing it. Totally agree. I just want to make clear when when I talk about the, the, the potential conflict this will cause, I am in no way saying that it should not happen. We should aggressively, aggressively investigate and prosecute these people. I'm just saying it's going to be a lot harder than, for example, when countering international terrorism domestically after 9-11. Fair enough. Well, speaking of aggressive investigation, let's go back to our favorite aggressive investigators here at Irrational Security. And that, those are our representatives, the representatives of, in the People's House in the January 6th committee, who this past week took a pretty notable step that has been much discussed, but not yet come to fruition. And that is they issued a set of subpoenas to five members of their own body, five of their colleagues, um, Republican members of the House of Representatives, including Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, seeking their testimony, testimony that they had previously been seeking to get through voluntary cooperation that had led seemingly nowhere, uh, and that instead they've now issued a set of subpoenas. Now, we don't know what's going to happen next. It's still a little bit early. Uh, I don't think many people expect that these five people will now, having not voluntarily cooperated, will now see these subpoenas and say, well, now I will immediately cooperate. They will almost certainly launch complaints through House processes. They may seek to file litigation and intervene and, and uh, you know, uh, prevent the committee from proceeding forward, as many other people who have received subpoenas for the January 6th committee are attempting to do through litigation. Um, they may wait to see if the House moves forward with you know, a criminal referral of them for contempt of Congress, or perhaps moves to use its inherent contempt authority, much discussed, rarely, rarely, maybe almost never used these days, but something that always comes up in these contexts to try and get these congressmen to acquiesce and participate in their investigation. In a lot of ways, it brings back a lot of familiar conversations we've had time and again about the extent to which uh, these committees can enforce their subpoenas, but now in a very unique context, which is a member of Congress on a number, another member of Congress. Quinta, let me start with you as, as the person uh, on this podcast who spends most time following the January 6th committee's activities. 
What do we think is the logic behind this measure, particularly doing it just a few weeks before they say they're going to start public hearings and in what is probably the last six to eight months of the committee's existence or very well might be uh, if uh, Republicans regain control of the House? You know, they're in the home stretch here. So why take such a dramatic step now? Count me puzzled. I cannot figure it out. And I am glad to know that I'm not the only one because Mike Stern, who previously uh, worked as counsel in the House of Representatives and and writes about congressional issues, has a piece in Lawfare titled, uh, What to Make of the Subpoenas to House Republicans. And I think his bottom line is shruggy emoji. Um, So look, it's, it's really not clear to me what they're doing precisely because there had been some reporting maybe a month or so ago that they weren't going to issue subpoenas and were going to stick with uh, voluntary requests. The reasoning being that the law is kind of fuzzy here. I think I think it's fair to say, without getting into the weeds, that there are a number of arguments that the Republicans who have been subpoenaed could use in court to try to get out of the subpoena. They are not likely to succeed in the end, but that doesn't matter if the whole point is just holding things up. So the speech and debate clause is, is one of them. So... For that reason, the committee had reportedly decided to avoid subpoenas. Now they've changed their mind and they sent the subpoenas. Uh, Mike Stern points out in his piece that it's not totally clear why they would do this right before they're about to have public hearings if the argument is, you know, we want to name and shame these people for not complying. You're already going to have an opportunity to do that at the hearings themselves. So I have two theories. <laughs> One theory is that the committee feels that it is important to say we did absolutely everything that we possibly could have done, right? We we ran down every avenue, we tried every tool in the box, we subpoenaed them, they didn't comply, and to be able to point to that and say we did everything that we could and we have evidence that you know these are not people who respect our investigation they do not respect the rule of law i think uh, representative Jamie Raskin who's on the committee essentially said as much um and that they feel that that is important for messaging purposes essentially the other possibility which is not mutually exclusive with the first is that they found something out in the intervening month or so that is so potentially explosive that they felt like they had to subpoena it because it was just that important um, for the investigation. And so that, again, so that they could say, we ran down every avenue. What might that information be? Does it exist? I have absolutely no idea. Um, but I, I do think it's uh, it's an interesting decision, to say the least. And I have no idea what the reason will turn out to be. Uh, yeah, that, that's a, a very helpful kind of overview of what's going on. And I, I also found the, the law piece to be quite useful. You know, the, the, the thing that occurs to me, and this is kind of zooming out a little bit, is the problem with Congress. <laughs> there are many problems with Congress. One problem with Congress is that it, it has lost its institutional sense of itself, right? And I think the turn to subpoenas is actually another example of this. Because as, you know, Mike Stern points out in, in his piece, the way you enforce a subpoena, of course, is you either go to the courts or you go to DOJ. Either way, you, the House of Representatives, are going outside the House to another branch of government to deal with people who are otherwise in your institution, right? And I, there are understandable reasons to do this, right? If if you think that this testimony is of paramount importance. But not only are there constitutional hurdles to this, because the Constitution in the Speech and Debate Clause provides Congress people with absolute immunity for the stuff that they say uh, on the House floor, right? And therefore, that that or on, on in Congress, and that may therefore limit to what extent the other branches can get involved. Um, it also signals that the House is not able to deal with its own business internally. Um, now, if, if that is the case, then well, maybe you do need a subpoena then if you think the information is so important. But it's just another example of how kind of the, the first branch of government, which is supposed to be able to deal with its stuff, it, with, with its, its stuff by itself, is increasingly unable to do so. I mean, I think that's not wrong. Although, again, as Mike points out in his piece, they do have the option of leveling fines within the House, as they've done for noncompliance with, with masking, for example. So I, I think that they're Generally, I agree with you, although I think this example might be a little more complicated. Can I say, 
I so this is a very familiar line of argument. I think it's been particularly harped on the last couple of years. Um, I think Josh Chaffetz, who I think is a phenomenal scholar, and I have no no beef with him uh, personally or most of his work, is kind of one of the leading fears of the idea that like Congress needs to deal with itself in its own house. I will just say, I actually think it's like a really problematic set of assumptions and isn't really a right way to evaluate Congress against itself. I mean, no branch acts in of itself to handle, resolve all its own business, right? Like, you know, the executive branch leans on the judiciary to pursue criminal proceedings or pursue civil proceedings that are against private entities. It can do it further its own internal investigations if it's actually like, you know, prosecuting internal executive branch officials for misconduct. But we don't see that as like a problem for the branch. So I just don't think it's inherently problematic or even unwise for the judiciary to seek to enforce things through the courts. Now, there's timing issues, right? Like maybe it should do a better job designing what it, the laws is that allow it to do so, right? You know, you can have expedited adjudication procedures. You can immediately go to a three-judge panel of the D.C. Circuit, immediately appeal to the Supreme Court. If you want to do that, there's a good argument maybe Congress should set itself to be able to do that better. I just don't think there's anything inherently wrong with Congress having to do that, particularly because Congress is inherently a more conflictual body than even the executive branch, which does this stuff. Well, sure. But the problem is that neither of those two branches respect Congress, right? Like the, the executive and the judiciary were doing things for one another works because they'll do what they're told. I think part of what, what Josh is getting at, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but part of what how I've understood his work is that the judiciary and the executive in different ways express their have expressed their desire to not do what Congress tells them to do, which creates problems. And not, and not just that, but but neither the judiciary and certainly not the executive are institutionally weak, right? The whole problem is that Congress, which is supposed to be, right, if not the prime mover in American government, at least a co-equal branch of government, increasingly views itself and increasingly acts as just another site of partisan competition, right? So it's, of course, it's fine that, you know, the branches rely on each other for stuff. That's not the issue. It, it's it's that this is another example of an underlying weakness that is only getting worse in Congress. But I just think it's fundamentally unpersuasive to say, look, we're we're going we're going to take them going to court as a sign of failure on their part. Frankly, like maybe it's a good argument to say that Congress wants to empower itself. And so it's going to set itself up to go to court more effectively. And listeners, we've now circled back to the same argument that Scott and I have been having <laughs> for years. The Mazar's opinion since it exactly. came out in 2020. I almost backed you into it. I was very excited Absolutely about that. Absolutely not. Nope. But. But I will say, so that's that's one element that's in this particular case. Here's what I think is interesting um, about these five subpoenas from doing a lot of inferring and reading between the lines. And I think it's a mix, probably to some extent, of the the hypotheses you put forward, Quinta, right? We have four of these five people are people who are actually directly involved with events either really in January 6th or to negotiating around the results of the 2020 elections, trying to change those results, right? All four of those people have really substantive connections to the investigation, it seems like. Jim Jordan is like the wishy-washiest, but like Jim Jordan was in the mix and all, on all of this stuff that it's not surprising to see his name on this list. The odd man out is Kevin McCarthy, uh, but we know Kevin McCarthy said a lot of things about Donald Trump in the wake of the election that represent a particular view that he has now walked back. They've come out on audio tape. Um, I suspect a lot of this has to do with getting around those efforts uh, and capturing the initial reaction of him as a senior party leader and probably a little bit of naming and shaming there. There, there may be a little bit of political game there. It's inherently part of all this. Uh, but I, as to why they take this measure, I don't know. The one thing I can think of, I think this is right, although Quinta, you may know otherwise, I'd, I'd welcome a correction on this, is that I think if they do make a referral for contempt, contempt of Congress, it survives this Congress, uh, meaning that the Biden administration Justice Department would still be able to prosecute even after the fact. I think it has to be the case because contempt of Congress takes a while to prosecute in the past. I, I don't I don't know, actually. That may be right. It's a good question. Like, that's the one from a strict, hard kind of like law angle. That seems to be the one advantage here that you're empowering the Biden Mission Justice Department to threaten these people if they don't cooperate. But it's also not clear how they would like how they could remedy that now, uh, because there will be no more body to cooperate with after January if the Republicans take back Congress. Um, but maybe that's maybe they don't need to remedy it. Maybe it's irremediable because they've already decided not to cooperate when the body is around. Um, I think you could make a legal theory there. I kind of doubt the Biden administration Justice Department is going to jump wholeheartedly into that, given how conservative they've been about contempt of Congress prosecutions so far in other constitutional questionable contexts, like you think about Mark Meadows. But but who knows? Maybe that's just one little edge. Other than that, I, you know, the politics are strange, but may have as much to do, be, do about internal politics and showing House Republicans that they're not afraid of what will inevitably be the investigations of Democratic 
party officials uh, and party and congressional members in the future. And so in that sense, it may be a little bit of a, a feeding into what is an increasingly vicious cycle of investigations between the two parties. I had a question for Quinta, uh, sort of on the January 6th stuff, not related to the subpoenas directly, but about the televised hearings coming up. That article that you circulated internally in Lawfare in the Washington Post, talking about you know the committee's new strategy. I'm curious if you think, uh, I think they're going to do them in prime time, right? They're not going to have them during the day, like the first two impeachment trials were, and they're going to seem to be, the committee's going to try to, according to this article, sort of flood the zone and go on as many shows as possible and morning shows and, and different things to sort of get their findings out there. I'm curious, in your opinion, you know, have they learned from the first two impeachment trials? I think so. I mean, it, as as you referenced, there's this piece in the Post that basically spells out the kind of the media strategy that the committee is planning to use for these hearings, although it doesn't give that many details on what the hearings themselves will entail. Yeah, it does seem like they're very conscious that this is a situation where they need to kind of seize the media environment and the narrative and run with it as far as they possibly can, and that that's an important part of the work they're doing. I don't know if they can. Like, I, it's it's such an unbelievably difficult task that they've set for themselves that it it seems quite hard. Um, and there's a there's a line in the um, the Washington Post report uh, from a, a source to a person close to the committee uh, saying, and I quote, the most important objective is the battle for the narrative over January 6th and all that came before it and all that has happened after. I think that's right. On the other hand, I think the battle for the narrative has kind of been lost already. This is not to be fatalistic. Like I think that there are important things that the committee can do. I think that creating a record um, creating a basis for accountability, if not immediate political accountability, then legal accountability, accountability in the, you know, the the grand scope of history is really, really important. If I were working with the committee, I would also probably say, you know what, we need to flood the zone. We need to be on all of the morning shows. We need to be in prime time. We need to be on Twitter, right? But it does strike me that they just have an impossible task. And that's the nature of the task. But I, I think my my main caution, and this is something I've been saying for a while, is just to not set our hopes too high. Like I don't, even if there is something more explosive than Donald Trump tweeting praise of rioters as they enter the Capitol, I do not think it will change the political situation at all in any way. That doesn't mean that it's not worth doing. I 100% agree with that. The one thing that's occurred to me recently, and we've had some internal conversations about that I thought were struck a chord with me, is that I think one of the bigger unresolved questions about that that may have a bigger impact on the committee is what do they do with all the material they've collected after their investigation's over, after they have their hearings? Because we know they have thousands of hours of interviews, countless documents, a lot of which is just going to go back and to the National Archives and be inaccessible at least immediately unless it's made public in some extent. And that's a huge amount of information. Frankly, you could see a lot coming out of that of public benefit, whether clarifying the historical record in a closer time frame than the National Archives usually permits, or frankly, being used to say, well, let's look specifically at some of these people who were involved in this and what they're really involved in when they come up for confirmation hearings in the future or for electoral office or for you know board appointments in a private sector, a lot of other roles. There's a lot more accountability that can, can still come in a sort of decentralized way. And you know the committee can do a lot for that if they actually take this immense amount of incredible information. They've done huge work pulling it together and make it available to the public. I'm hoping they will do that um, before January 3rd when they are likely, when they very well may not no longer exist. That requires a logistical task about where we put all this stuff, but Lawfare has a lovely website, guys. Uh, so feel free to reach out. And <laughs> if we need some server space, I'm sure we can reach it out. So work it out. So let us know. And we have a great podcast as well. This is the sh- shameless self-promotion edition as well called The Aftermath that everybody should go check out. That's exactly right. Bryce, that's why we bring you on this episode. That's well done. Well done. Well, folks, we will have to leave it there for now, but this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to think about as you go about your week. Alan, let me hand it over to you to get us started. So my object lesson is a a book. It's Sea of Tranquility, which is the new novel by the uh, author Emily St. John Mandel, who is a Famous at this point for writing Station Eleven, which is a great book and a great uh, HBO series, as well as The Glass Hotel. Um, it's a very cool kind of time travel novel. 
it's just a really good book. And it's and the thing I like about it is that I like literature and I like sci-fi and I like when sci-fi and literature combine. Um, and I think this is just another example of the mainstreaming of the sci-fi genre as a site for just exceptional literature. Um, you know, I read it in basically a day and a half. I stayed up way too late one night reading it, which has not been the case uh, in a long time for me. And so uh, highly, highly recommended The Sea of Tranquility by Emily St. John Mandel. Quinta, well, how about you? I would like to provide a triumphant update. Um, I posted this on Twitter, but devoted rational security listeners may recall that sometime in February, January, I announced that I had murdered a plant by leaving a window open in the depths of the winter and that it was dead and that I would attempt to revive it. Um, So I'm happy to say it is revived. It is thriving. It is doing well. It is in a sunny window. I was able to root some cuttings. That's my green thumb right there. Like everyone else, I got into plants during the pandemic. Um, So consider my green thumb, you know, it's back. The plant is doing well. Just wanted to let everyone know. This raises an interesting philosophical question. First of all, congratulations. But it does raise an interesting philosophical question of is the plant doing well or is like the plant's ancestor doing well? Like ship of thesis? Exactly. Is it the same plant if it's a if it's a cutting? No, it's it's like in the in the Princess ah. Bride, right? It was only mostly dead, right? It's it's not, alive now. I'm not sure that it's the same. I think it's a please, listeners, please tweet at us. Is it uh it is definitely a triumph of Quintas, one hundred percent. But is it the same plant or is it a different plant? It is an interesting question. I'd like to know your thoughts on that. I will say the number one reason why I find this outcome a little depressing is because I have so many near dead plants still scattered around my house now that I hear so many stories of people finding ways to revive them. And I've researched every one of these species. and They all say they can be revived, that I just have sticks sitting in like little pots of dirt all around my house uh, with no apparent ways of saving them. But maybe I will get lucky uh, like Quinta and have have a similar Lazarus plant uh, emerge in my own life here. For my object lesson, because this is an object lesson of throwbacks, we have Alan talking about sci-fi, we have Quinta talking about her Once a Future Plant, I will also do a throwback to something we have not had recently enough, and that is Muppet content, because I am, once again, without a nanny for the last couple of days, and so I've been doing a lot of childcare, which has involved a probably shameless amount of screen time for my one-and-a-half-year-old, and I think on Disney+, Plus, I found yet another Muppet t- television series, which I thought I exhausted all of them, and that is a single-run series that was on ABC in 2015 called The Muppets where the Muppets were essentially managing a late night talk show. And it is an adult sitcom featuring the Muppets kind of managing like a a Leno type or Fallon type talk show where Miss Piggy is the host and Kermit is the executive producer and they had a bad breakup. And so they're dating other people. He's dating another pig who's on cast. She's dating Josh Groban at one point. Uh, And it's actually like really fantastic. It would be a like decidedly mediocre, even probably sub mediocre sitcom if it were like, just human beings doing it, but because they are like Muppets uh, and can occasionally every three minutes throw in a completely nonsense Muppet joke, like Swedish chef mumbling a bunch of like, you know, sassy affirmations under his breath at people in his Swedish chef voice. It is absolutely phenomenal. I'm really enjoying it, as is my son. Uh, So highly recommend checking that out. I think there's only like eight episodes, but um, worth checking out on Disney Plus if you have it. Bryce, we'll hand it over to you to bring us on home. All right. Um, So my object lesson is a television show. Because a few weeks back, I had coronavirus. And like a lot of people, I started binge watching things while I was sick and really couldn't do anything else. And I don't know if you guys have, if you all have heard of this TV show. It's called The Sopranos. I think it's a few years old. And spoken is, like a uh, New Jerseyan. Spoken like a young person. My God. Okay, so I assume you've all heard of it then. You um, you all didn't see it. He put quote marks around television. <laughs> it's, infuri- <laughs> it's infuriating. <laughs> But and, go ahead, Bryce. Well, there there is a news hook to this uh, to this object lesson because as I was binge watching The Sopranos, Mark Esper's book had just come out um, about Secretary of Defense Esper about all of the things that uh, Trump had not ordered but implied, and some have likened it to a mafia boss. So, if you'd like to watch a show where you learn about the distinction between implying something in the mafia that's really taken as an order. Highly recommend The Sopranos and a documentary on Netflix called Fear City. Um, it is very good, and there is a little appearance from a figure known as Rudy Giuliani in the <laughs> Netflix documentary that is pretty wild to see. Um, Bryce, next time you're on the show, you should also tell the audience about the uh, little-known cult classic 
film The Godfather because I don't know if people have, have heard of that. So that, that might be something mm. worth bringing up. I'll have, to, I'll have to check it out. That sounds good. I hear the third one is the best. Like, don't miss that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. Follow us on Twitter at RETL Security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. While you're at it, visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links to past episodes, for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other podcast series, including our daily Lawfare podcast and our new special series on the programmatic failures that led us to leave partners and others behind in Afghanistan allies. As Bryce has already plugged earlier this episode, it's absolutely phenomenal and is available today. So please search for it in your podcatcher, download it, and leave us a hopefully five-star review on Apple's or wherever you may be listening and be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Among those benefits this Friday, you as a Patreon supporter will be able to join a Lawfare live session with Bryce and others involved in making allies to talk about the production and parts of the story that didn't make it into the final cut. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Quentin Allen, and our special guest, Bryce Clem, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.